and welcome to the show. This upload is coming to you December 14th, 2016, and you're listening to the Post Money Plan Podcast, where we demystify the complexities of finance and economics. This week is part two of two on a discussion around the minimum wage. In part one, we covered reasons for the recent rise of discussion around a $15 minimum wage, the intent of those who support and those who oppose the minimum wage, who the minimum wage actually affects, the history of the minimum wage, and we touched a bit on the arguments for and against the minimum wage. So if you missed it, go back and listen to part one. Today in part two, we'll pick up where we left off and go further in depth on the economic arguments for and against the minimum wage. The discussion again includes myself, Dallas Post, the founder of the Post Money Plan, as well as Murray Williams and Tom Dickens. So I'll quickly play back their intros for you from last week. Murray, if you could just introduce yourself. Williams, and I'm a former stock and bond broker and economist, and I'm also a, an emerging fund manager as well as a published author, and I hold several securities licenses, including the Series 65. All right, and Tom, if you could introduce yourself. Yeah, Tom Dickens. I'm a commercial insurance professional. I come from the Austrian School of Economics and Libertarian Political Philosophy. All right, so let's take you right back into it. So... Okay, let's just touch on the economic arguments for a minimum wage. Typically, people want to refer to being able to earn a minimum wage where people earning the current minimum wage, the argument is that you cannot survive on that amount, at least in the U.S., what it's set at. And that's a valid argument, but the counterpoint is that the type of jobs that are paying minimum wage are not the type of jobs that people should be continuing to abide in if they intend to support a family and stay in that job throughout their career. Well, you don't go into a minimum wage job as a career. Right? Yeah, exactly. That's not the purpose of lower wage jobs in the first place. I mean, most people that work low wages are doing it either as a temporary thing or they're doing it to gain skills or they're doing it with the hope of moving up on to management level or like learning the business and that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Like you were saying before and what we covered in the statistics, as it stands now, the type of people that are earning minimum wage are younger and less experienced, and they're working lower-skilled jobs. So economically, it actually makes sense that it would be those people, because that is what we would intuit to be the case. And it goes back to the whole concept of income inequality, which I believe is a Marxist kind of thinking, because there's always going to be income inequality. Through everybody's stage in life, you know, when you're first born, you're an infant, you're not going to be making any money. When you're old and you can no longer physically do certain types of things, mentally too, then you're not going to be making a lot of money either. So the argument for equality, it really doesn't make a lot of sense because if you try to enforce income equality, you're just going to have a totalitarian state because people make different incomes based on the service they provide, based on their skill, and you really cannot mandate that. And it's idealistic in thinking in the same way that communism on paper sounds great, but it doesn't play out that way because someone who cleans up trash and someone who is a nuclear physicist are not going to have the same incentives or the same passion for their job or require the same education and amount of effort. So it's impossible to equate everything in life. Another argument was that minimum wage in the 60s would be somewhere a little above $10 an hour if adjusted for inflation. So real minimum wage has actually gone down. But like we mentioned before, that point of reference is actually cherry-picked from the highest point in U.S. history. So, uh, And if 
I could just add something to Dallas, I really think that this discussion is really valuable because I think we should be talking more about the minimum wage, but it seems like it's something the politicians really don't want to attack. They really don't want to be critical of the minimum wage because they have this fear that they will be perceived as someone who's not being kind to the poor. But the way we are discussing it today, we're talking about it logically and intelligently, talking about the pros and cons. And if more policymakers were able to talk about it in those terms, they could educate the electorate and say, yeah, maybe an increased minimum wage and poor people who support Democrats like, yeah, maybe it's not such a good thing after all. You'd have to use their language. How are poor people supposed to get a job with the minimum wage? You know, you'd have to sort of come at it from that angle. You're transferring wealth to the already privileged by raising the minimum. You know, like, it resonates when the person who's the worst off is getting affected. Mm -hmm. which is the case with minimum wage. But if you just say something like, get rid of the minimum wage and not explain or put anything before it or after it, then yeah, it's going to sound bad. Yeah, you got to give the reasons why. And you got to talk about it logically and saying, yeah, it's just a wash. It doesn't really affect, well, it does affect poor people, but in a negative way. And, you know, you could bring the arguments up about pricing certain ethnic groups out of the market using the minimum wage too. So that's it's actually a, a pretty sensible argument there. Well, that's actually a really good segue into the meat of what we're trying to get at, which is the economic arguments against a minimum wage. So why don't we just plow straight into that? Sure. First of all, like we already said, a big part of the American dream or a capitalist society is you need to be able to like build your way up from scratch. Start with nothing and then you end the American up with, dream. The, with the white picket fence. And a lot of this process is acquiring skills. You need to acquire skills so that people are willing to pay you for your services or your products. And starting at low-paying jobs is one of the ways to do this. And we know this is true because we have things called internships. People are willing to work for free to get the skills and the jobs that they need in order to flourish later on in life. But for some reason, if you work for free, it's okay. But if you work for $3 an hour, it's suddenly atrocious. But it's the same intent. The intent is to get the experience, the intent is to acquire the skills, and I don't know why people seem to think it's okay to work for free, but it's not okay to work for a small dollar amount. Yeah, in Europe they call internships apprenticeships, or at least in the old days they did, so it's kind of the same thing, yeah. So yeah, one of the economic arguments against it is that you're creating a barrier of entry into the labor force for unskilled workers. Another powerful argument against it is what you described economically is, is when you try to affect supply and demand, if you create a price floor on something, that you actually create more unemployment if you do that. So one argument against minimum wage is that economically it's very inefficient because you are guaranteeing that certain levels of the population will not be able to work just because you're pricing the minimum wage at a higher level than the natural market rate. In economic terms, that's typically referred to as a deadweight loss. And if you extrapolate the argument, instead of saying, hey, let's pay everyone a fair minimum wage of $15 an hour, well, why don't we make it $50 an hour while we're at it, just to be fair, so that everyone can have a great wage? But it doesn't work that way. Companies can't afford that. Right. They don't hire people. Then they can't produce their goods. Then people don't have goods. And the entire economy unravels. And it becomes one of those laws that are just uncompliable, especially if you decided to raise the minimum wage to $50 an hour. You just couldn't do that. That's like putting the speed limit at 10 miles per hour. It just doesn't make any sense. But you need yeah, to conserve gas. <laughs> automation, if you raise minimum wages, you completely destroy jobs because it's cheaper to build machines to do them. You're already seeing this happen, Donald. So Adam Smith referred to the invisible hand. 
Uh-huh. You can yeah, add exactly. these things into the economy, but the, the market always finds a way. It always finds a way to slither through the cracks. You can add a law or you can add a minimum wage or something and do a predictive analysis that things are going to react this way, but then someone will invent a new invention or a new machine and it throws everything for a loop. If minimum wage gets too high, companies are going to find a way that they don't have to hire people anymore. Exactly. That comes down to making people obsolete faster, which really disrupts the economy for people because then that's really going to make the wealthy wealthier and the poor poorer. Because then it's the owners of capital who control the machines and robots and automation who then get to experience the wealth created from that automation, whereas the people who don't own that capital are priced out of the market and can't compete. So like we said before, the minimum wage has the impact of biting the hand that feeds you. So it really is a matter of creating more domestic unemployment and poverty than redistributing wealth. But back on the making people obsolete faster... I'll just illustrate the point which we've been alluding to. Companies have two forms of cost, things and people, or you could think of that as goods and services, or in economic terms, capital and labor. And when running a business, labor and capital can often be interchangeable, especially in menial tasks. For example, both a person and a machine can be a toll taker. But when it's interchangeable, companies will try to pay for whichever cost is less expensive. So if the cost of labor is raised via a mandatory minimum wage higher than whatever some natural market rate may be, paying for capital or that machine becomes more attractive than paying for the person. So in translation, what we're referring to in McDonald's, McDonald's buys a bunch of iPads to take orders and fires all its cashiers because paying for one iPad already saves money after one week of paying a cashier at like $15 an hour or so. Uh But in the end, the result is that cashiers lose their jobs. McDonald's has to pay more for order taking than the market determined minimum wage if they do continue to pay cashiers. And then burgers end up costing more to customers because of the cost push phenomenon. So that just illustrates what we've already been alluding to. It creates a worse experience for the consumer as well. We're talking a lot about the labor side here, but the consumer suffers as well. And the consumer is everybody. And usually when you're looking at minimum wage, low labor jobs, they're creating low cost products. And the people who buy those low cost products are poor people. So the poor people are also affected on the demand side as well, where the products they're buying are either A, more expensive, or B, worse serviced. So it creates a worse experience for the consumer as well on both ends. I visited a food court, I remember a couple of years ago when I was working downtown, and I remember I paid 12 bucks for a burger, fries, and a Coke, whereas I went to a buffet, an all-you-can-eat buffet, and I paid 10 bucks. I got, all, I got so much more food. The fast food phenomenon or what it's causing is just creating all the inefficiencies. It's just a really bad deal for everyone. Then another argument is that you incentivize domestic companies to outsource jobs to places or countries where they don't have those minimum wages or places where the minimum wage is lower. So in the case of the U.S. or Canada, you have companies that can get cheaper labor from Mexico or China or India. One of the hot button issues, especially during this election cycle, is just jobs being exported overseas. 
I've been analyzing this phenomenon for years as far as like automobiles, for instance, being manufactured overseas. But I've known people who have worked in automobile assembly plants. Actually, they're paid very well. It's like these frontline auto workers are paid 20 bucks an hour. And one thing related to the minimum wage, it's just the organized labor phenomenon just keeps jacking up wages more and more and more to where the employers just cannot really afford them anymore. And I think it's more the fault of the companies themselves who are agreeing to these wage and benefit increases. For instance, your General Motors and you realize, well, we can't continue to pay our employees this. We're paying them 20 bucks an hour. And they announce to their workers, well, we're going to cut your pay in half to $10 an hour. And the organized laborer, they're going to say, well, like hell you are. We're going to go on strike. And so in a lot of cases, it's probably easier for an automobile plant to relocate to Mexico than to go through a big labor dispute here in the U.S. And you just say, well, we're going to roll back wages to 10 bucks an hour from 20. It's just easier just to open up a plant in Mexico. And there's the unfortunate phenomenon. We can have all kinds of labor protection laws in the U.S., but if they don't exist in other countries, then... Companies, in an unscrupulous manner, may choose to just relocate wherever, regardless of whatever laws are in place, go to wherever they can get the cheapest labor. And as part of their fiduciary duty to have the lowest cost and try to generate the most profit for their shareholders, but it doesn't work flawlessly to just assume blanket things for the U.S. and that, then all of a sudden it applies everywhere in the world. It just doesn't work that way. I've heard there's a global movement to institute a minimum wage everywhere in the world, in Africa, in Asia. I mean, that just seems like it would have a ridiculous effect. Like, how would you even, <laughs> what minimum wage would you set? I can't even begin to think, <laughs> go into that. Looking at it from a liberal perspective, and you see these sweatshops, I remember years ago, and Nike was criticized for having these sweatshops of 12-year-old kids putting together sneakers that you can sell for $100 a pair here in the United States. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, it's just like more of an altruistic, idealistic kind of thing, and not really based in any kind of logic. There's actually two sides to that coin, because on the one hand, this is kind of a different subject, but let's say like child labor, for example, and the moral dynamic behind that. On our American perspective, we might say we don't want children to have to be forced into labor because they should still be in school and learning. But when you get to the case of a poor family in India or China, where even on the income of both parents, they still can't afford to live. And so they have to have their kids work as well. And that's the only means of them getting by. Then you pass a blanket law then what seemingly is a good thing becomes a financial detriment to that very family you were trying to help. Yeah, and child labor more or less has been more a part of our history than not. It's only really recently in the last you know, 100 years, 150 years, that we have developed the amount of wealth in society where children don't have to work anymore. But it's necessary in a developing nation or a developing state. I mean, children used to work on the farms all the time. You'd have more kids mm -hmm. because you would need more workers on the farm. I mean, that was like one of the reasons to have kids. And this is the way things were for a very long time. And one of the reasons why we have summers off of school in the United States is the old agricultural society, the agrarian society of children being allowed to work during the harvest. Yeah, sure. You want your society to get rich enough where they wouldn't have to and they can focus on education. So you can advance as a society and turn towards a more educated economy, but you can't force that on other developing nations. Not when you enjoy the benefits of that extra labor force when your own nation was developing. Right. And another aspect on the global scale is that each country is at a different stage in this development cycle, in its economic development. 
and different things occur at different stages in a life cycle. And to be in the U.S. where we're one of the more mature economies in the world, to then try to apply things that we're dealing with here in the U.S. to other places in the world which are at different stages is completely incompatible. Which kind of leads me into the next argument against a minimum wage, which is one-size-fits-all is really a one-size-fits-none situation. Because even if you look at just the U.S., you have the debate around a federal minimum wage, which would apply to all of the states. But where, in fact, there's also state legislation, states have state minimum wages. So... Setting a $15 an hour minimum wage for every state is like only allowing medium-sized shirts because it's the closest fit to everybody. But really, then it only fits a few people and doesn't fit small or large either. This is really a problem with any socialist policy in my mind, where what works well for the average really works best for nobody. And $15 an hour, I mean, that might still be insufficient to live in California. Socialists have a really difficult time with pricing in general whenever they try to force markets. Pricing is always the thing they really struggle with because price is developed through free market enterprise. And it's dynamic. That's the thing, too. Even in communist Russia, the biggest problem they had was pricing their goods. That was their biggest dilemma. They didn't know how much do we charge for a bar of soap, like how much do we charge for a pair of pants. Like That was their biggest struggle. They're basically price fixing all their products. And then what they ended up resulting to was looking at Sears catalogs to get the prices. So they even Uh admittedly had to look at a capitalist system in order to find out their pricing. And if you start pricing labor, you're not pricing it accurately. You're going to create gaps. You're going to create inefficiencies. Yeah, it's just the argument of the whole centralized planning, top-down approach. And I think what works good for one group of people doesn't work good for everyone, like like what you're saying, Dallas. But every state is different. The people are different in every state. Countries are different. And so if you try to do this one-size-fits-all or one minimum wage fits all, you're going to create a lot of inefficiency. And like you said earlier, Tom, the history of the Soviet Union, you know, they tried to apply centralized planning to food production and distribution, and it was an absolute disaster. People ended up starving to death. And what happened was, was that after the communists took over and they tried to have supermarkets full of goods, it ended up being every single supermarket, the shelves were empty and you had lines of people trying to get food, which is what's happening in Venezuela right now. And the, the socialists just don't really understand the laws of history. And even places like North Korea, they have to actually allow private markets for food distribution. But if you look at things like the NHS and healthcare, you can kind of get away with it a little bit, like what the beginning way with in England, even though there's, there's really long lines for healthcare because not everyone is sick. But if you try to apply it to food, everyone has to eat every day. So it becomes an absolute disaster and just doesn't work. Some with labor, everybody's got to work. That's right. Mm-hmm. Another thing is that setting a high minimum wage, or quote-unquote a relative high minimum wage, you incentivize companies to reduce the number of hours allocated to hourly employees and then try to allocate more work or more time to your salaried employees. So you actually might end up taking the work away from the very people who are part-time or not making much money because they're on the minimum wage job. And the company ends up allocating that work to their salaried employees. Yeah, salaried employees end up working more. I've yeah. actually seen examples of this in real life where they're paying you a salary that they're just going to put it on you, right? Of I got a friend like that. I was just talking to him last night and he works, he was telling me he works about 12 hours a day. And I asked him, don't you get paid overtime? He's like, no, I'm salaried. <laughs> yeah. 
That's the other thing. It's like you can get a salary, like a somewhat low salary, and you end up working 12, 13-hour days working overtime. But this is not something that anyone ever complains about because they're like, well, yeah, you're working that extra, those extra hours because you want that promotion or you're learning that skill. I remember when I started out in my job, I was working less than minimum wage because I was just trying to learn as much as I could and trying to establish myself early on. And it's no different than doing that on a salary and working a low wage at a McDonald's or something. It's the same principle. But for some reason, people seem to think it's different if it's below a per hour number on a per hour pay. And like I said, internships can get completely ignored. So mm-hmm. it's double standards all over in the way people measure labor costs. Mm-hmm. If they ever decided to put the minimum wage up to 50 bucks an hour, you're going to have a lot more unpaid internships in that kind of an economy. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that's not thought of very often is that if you set a high minimum wage, you actually reduce the incentive for people to finish high school and go to college because we've looked yeah. at who the minimum wage impacts currently, and it's mostly people with lower education. So if you can make what seems like a decent salary without even finishing high school, then you have less incentive to get more education and empower yourself. Yeah, uh-huh. absolutely. I can already hear the arguments again for minimum wage. Like One of the arguments for minimum wage that people always say is they're like, oh, well, if wage prices were just left to the free market, then companies are all just going to start charging a dollar an hour for all their jobs. Why wouldn't they all just get together and be like, how about we just charge $2 an hour and their philosophy is that wages will just, through the equilibrium forces of the market, wages will just keep going down, 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 down. Companies will keep mm-hmm. charging less. Like, oh, yeah, well, I'll just hire someone for a dollar less, and then I'll hire someone for a dollar less until the wages are rock bottom. But the problem with that is that the company that's willing to pay the higher wages gets the more experienced labor. They take the employees from another company because they're paying them a little more. And if this phenomenon did happen, then we would all be working minimum wage right now. The fact that we're not is because companies bid higher wages for labor. And that's why you see the successful companies at any given point in time paying top salaries. People want to work at Google or Microsoft or whatever, like all the successful tech companies, because they are paying the high salaries because that incentivizes high-skilled employees to go there. And this is kind of tangential, but even the fact that a minimum wage exists means you kind of have to have enforcement which takes resources that would otherwise not be required in a free market wage setting. That kind of goes back to the example of the Soviet Union, where you have to spend so much time just figuring out what things should price instead of it naturally occurring in the market. And then you don't have to have all these resources allocated just to figure out what something should cost. Yeah, it does it on its own instead of having to devote resources to it. And then the counter to the incentive of people not wanting to finish high school if they can get a high minimum wage is that if there is a low minimum wage or like no minimum wage, then people are incentivized to work in low wage jobs only for a short time and then attempt to move on or get more education or gain more skills and do something that they can produce more. One of the arguments people have been talking about, there's an educational college bubble as far as the student debt is concerned, and a lot of people are going to college, and they're getting degrees that really have no marketable value, and they're not really learning any skill, and they're just getting educated and not really getting something that can really pay for their student loans. But a lot of trade schools are starting to pop up. And even if you decide to work in technology, you don't really have to go to college. If you want to work in technology, you can just go to a trade school and take a few programming courses or take a few IT courses. And the college degree is not required in IT. 
That actually raises a good point in the sense that the economy will dictate what is valuable in society in terms of education at any given point in time. Because in the past, knowing about agriculture and farming was really important and valuable because we needed more food production. But now that that has become more abundant and we're making headways in terms of computers and robotics and that kind of thing, the tech industry has developed to where the demand is there and therefore the economy has gravitated in that direction and therefore the jobs are in that direction and therefore the education should be in that direction. But there are things even in technology that are way ahead of where we should be right now. It doesn't make any sense at this point in time to go to school for terraforming on Mars because we haven't been to Mars yet and we're not ready for that. So that would be just a waste of resources. So even though it's nice to learn about as many things as we can, there's things that are practical and that we should allocate time and resources towards at any given point in time. Anyhow, that concludes everything we had on the discussion. Catch us next time on another edition of the Post Money Plan podcast. 